Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fuglesang Podcast. I'm John Fuglesang. This is Sirius XM Progress. We have a great show for you tonight. Who? Are some DOJ prosecutors reportedly recommending not be charged in an ongoing sex trafficking investigation? Matt Gates will explain why. Which party unveiled a commitment to America today featuring a list of mostly vindictive, bigoted things they promised to do if given a majority and speakership this November? And what department has resumed its national security risk assessment of materials recovered from Mar-a-Lago? Welcome to the show. I'm John saying It is so great to be with you. Our number is 866-997-4748. Tonight, the great Kenneth C. Davis, historian extraordinaire, the author of Don't Know Much About History, all the Don't Know Much series, is with us to talk about the history of book banning in the U.S. and why the stuff we're hearing about happening now is in no way new. And then some George Carlin, Jerry Hamza, is a name you might know if you're a big fan of George. If you're not, all you need to know is that George was a big fan of Jerry. Jerry was George's manager early on, and he was his promoter. But he was more than that. He really became one of George's best friends. He began his career working with country artists like Merle Haggard and Willie and Loretta Lynn. But once he moved to California to manage George Carlin, his whole life changed. For the next 35 years, they were best friends. And Jerry Hams was one of the producers of the Emmy-winning HBO documentary, George Carlin's American Dream, directed by Judd Apatow, friend of the show. He's one of the few people around to have a really deep insight and a library of memories about the life of George. He even appears on George's posthumous album. The album, uh, I Kind of Like It When a Lot of People Die, features an interview with Jerry talking about, well, that album's title and why that was not the title they could keep after September 11th, 2001. I'm so excited to have him. Uh, He's a legend in comedy. So if you love music, if you love George Carlin, uh, if you love history, and if you love politics, we are your place. Our number is 866-997-4748. Let's get to it. I want to let you know, I've got very good news. I I figured out a solution to what's going on with Mar-a-Lago. I called up Jimmy Carter and I asked him if he would just reclassify all the stolen Mar-a-Lago documents uh, with his mind, uh, since that's a thing now. And I think he agreed to it. So everything's copacetic. House Republicans rolled out their four-part commitment to America. It was sort of like Newt Gingrich's contract with America a generation ago, except it had all the evil with none of the specifics. It's very, very vague. Um, The four parts of their commitment are an economy that's strong. Well, okay, uh, we've certainly come a long way since Trump left. A nation that's safe. Well, we've certainly come a long way since Bush was president in 2001. A future that's free. Ladies, not you. A government that's accountable. Well, from a party that voted to acquit Trump. (laughs) after January 6th. It's a gift to comedy and it's a gift to Democrats because they already see so much here they can campaign against. They're sort of feeling the hot breath of the midterm elections on their necks. Things are looking pretty good for Republicans, at least in the House. So they had the press conference to recycle old strategy for a weary modern world. Here is future most miserable speaker of the House of all time, Kevin McCarthy, 
who will hate every day of his life if he becomes speaker, telling the people what's behind door number two. They control Washington. They control the House, the Senate, the White House. They control the committees. They control the agencies. It's their plan. But they have no plan to fix all the problems they created. So you know what? We've created a commitment to America. It's just, he's such a bad speaker. I, I almost feel bad. And we're going to talk about it today. We want an economy that is strong. That means you can fill up your tank. You can buy the groceries. You have enough money left over to go to Disneyland and save for a future. That the paychecks grow, they no longer shrink. We have a plan for a nation that's safe. That means your community will be protected. Your law enforcement will be respected. Your criminals will be prosecuted. We believe in a future that's built on freedom that your children come first. They're taught to dream big. And we believe in a check and balance that government should be accountable. No longer special interest. We should work for you, not the other way around like it is today. <laughs> come on, dude. Wow, wow. That is a guy who has groveled before Donald Trump. That is a guy who finally stood up to Donald Trump after the terrorist attack on our Capitol and then promptly flew down to Mar-a-Lago to grovel a little more. Talking about accountability, can I just really quickly, since Biden took office, 8.6 million jobs created. The greatest year for job creation in American's history was Biden's first year in office. The lowest rate of child poverty in the history of this country was 2021. Gas prices have dropped 20% over three months, the American Rescue Plan was the biggest investment in, in K through 12 education in the history of the country. And every one of these godless twits in the Republican Congress voted against it. And of course, Joe Biden increased police spending and he has always opposed abolish the police. This this plan, such as it is, is a lot vaguer and smaller than the contract with America. But the plan is about giving the GOP a unified message for the final stretch to November 8th. They're calling it again the commitment to America, not the contract with America. And it's all the fear-monger-ready campaign issues you've already heard them push. But this time, it's like a demonic Christmas wish list for people who only believe in white Santa. Here is Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who knows better and does it anyway on education. I am proud to be the newest mom in Congress. I am a mom to my one-year-old, Sam. And I will tell you, moms and dads across this country, they know that parents are the primary stakeholders in their kids' education, which is why we will pass a Parents' Bill of Rights. A Parents' Bill of Rights, by the way, is going to have nothing about child care. It's going to have nothing about health care for children. It's going to be about keeping critical race theory out of public school because it's only taught in law school. And not sexual in public identity. school. Uh, sexual identity. Uh, it's going to protect all your children from transgender children that uh, you never meet but occasionally hear about on the news. It's going to protect transgender men from competing in third grade girls sports. It's really bold. They're they're really fighting for you. You know, and, and they were talking about how McCarthy was saying how we're never we're the first thing we're going to do is stop the IRS from having eighty seven thousand more agents. You know, Joe Biden increased the IRS because one of the big features of the Inflation Reduction Act was going after the billionaire tax cheats in this country and making sure they pay their fair share. So uh, he said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to kill that. He essentially was saying he, he wanted to say, we're going to make sure the IRS can't chase down wealthy American tax cheats so they pay their fair share like working people. But that didn't test very well at the donor retreat. I'll also remind you, Biden just passed the Chips and Science Act, which is going to be a huge investment in manufacturing for electronics in this country. The PACT Act for veterans. Republicans voted against all of this. The first major gun safety legislation in decades because the Democrats, for all their flaws, for all their compromised values, for all their bad attempts at being hip, actually care about real children. And they want to make it harder for your neighborhood lunatic to get his hands on an AR-15. Historic job growth. Historically low unemployment. The fastest jobs recovery in history. Oh, yeah. And uh, once-in-a-generation infrastructure investments. 
and the first black woman on the Supreme Court. Joe Biden wasn't in my top three choices for president. And he's still done more in a year and a half than these twits have ever promised. Here is Steve Scalise, one of the most racist members of Congress. I think it's fair to say he he said to a white supremacist group once that he was like David Duke without the baggage. Steve Scalise, of course, also uh, against women, voted against fair pay for women, always been a misogynist, Uh, big gay hater. Anything that might give LGBT Americans dignity, he supposed it. And he also voted to make it easier for mentally ill people to get guns. And what happened? A mentally ill person got a gun and shot Steve Scalise. And who saved his life? D.C. Capitol Police Officer Crystal Griner, who is black, a lesbian, and married to a woman. That's who saved the life of the misogynist, homophobe racist. Here's Steve Scalise on immigration and border control. America knows it's a problem when more than 100,000 of our young people died from fentanyl overdoses last year because Joe Biden opened up the border. We will have oversight hearings on what happened, who was responsible for opening up America's southern border, how many have come in, how many are on the terrorist watch list that we know of, and when will we start doing something about it. In our commitment to America, we talk about securing America's border and holding them accountable. We will give Secretary Mike Orcus, a reserved parking spot. He will be testifying so much about this. So that's the kind of oversight we're going to be doing. Joe Biden has never opened up the southern border. And everyone who ever died of fentanyl last year just had their tragic deaths exploited by a hack politician for a lie. Okay, here's the deal. Any politician of any party who talks about illegal immigration, but doesn't talk about locking up the people, namely the white people who do the hiring, well, they're not serious and should not be taken seriously. If either political party wanted to end illegal immigration, they'd start locking up the white people who hire undocumented workers. And I'm not doing both sides-isms, but it's a point Democrats should bring up. And yes, I know non-white people hire undocumented workers as well, but it's the white people who make it a racist thing. So they're the ones. I'm sorry. You start locking up brown people for hiring undocumented workers, it's not going to change anything. You start locking up some bloody Caucasians for their yard workers, for their nannies. Well, you'll see some reform pretty quick, and then you'll see our entire economy collapse. Because our economy would not function as well as it does in good times and bad without exploited labor paid off the books. Can you imagine what would happen to the construction industry? What would happen to the agricultural industry? Go ahead and try it. I would love, love, love to see every uh, undocumented worker uh, replaced by someone who's being paid a living wage. They don't want to pay a living wage. That's the real scandal. And they take advantage of the racism just for votes. But you guys know this already. So it was a mess today. They they had nothing. They looked awkward. It, it was a weird, like, Sergeant Peppers from hell cover. There were, were there bleachers? Marjorie Taylor Greene was behind them all like a Muppet. I don't understand what I saw today. But, you know, this is the GOP. This is as good as it's going to get. Which brings me to J.R. Majewski, because we've enjoyed him. I've enjoyed playing his clips. He was just saying last week, you know, he's so patriotic. He doesn't get goosebumps. He gets eagle bumps. And I'm like, bro, there's treatment for eagle bumps if you get those. If you're having an outbreak, you should always tell your partner. But J.R. Majewski is the guy who's been bragging on every podcast that'll have him as he runs for Congress in the 9th District of Ohio, bragging about his record as a combat veteran in Afghanistan. Doesn't like to talk about it too much, but yeah, you know, he saw combat in six months. And the AP reported that he had wildly exaggerated. Well, no, AP, he bloody fucking lied about his military background. Uh, And he was actually loading cargo onto a plane in Qatar. Never saw action. So the GOP pulled a million dollars in ad buys and has essentially seeded the 9th District, which Trump won by a couple of points. But now Marcy Kaptur, who has served for a couple of decades, looks to be a lock to keep her seat in Congress. I mentioned Donald Trump supported this guy, right? Well, I didn't think it could get funnier. I mean, last night we were playing clips of him on his interviews talking about his military record. I don't like to talk about it, but I I saw a lot of stuff. Yeah. Loading cargo on a plane in Qatar. So he held a press conference today to explain about that. No, no, he didn't lie about anything. 
his full military records you see are classified. Give a listen. Here is J.R. Majewski. The inquiry states, we show one deployment to Qatar from May 2002 to November 2002. What he did, meaning me, or where he may have went from that location, we do not have visibility on. In fact, the orders and the military records that I've been able to obtain from my personal files shows that all of my deployments are listed as classified. This was a strategic <laughs> and strategically placed, excuse me, to crush me and defame me with a fake, a fake hit piece. He closed it saying, again, this gentleman claimed he fought I... in Afghanistan after 9-11. Uh, he actually spent six months, only six months, loading planes in Qatar where there are no frontline battles. He did not receive any of the awards given to service members who actually did serve in Afghanistan. Chris, you wanted to weigh in on this statement? Well, the counterpoint is um, the working title of Top Gun Maverick was Top Gun Majewski. I had no idea. Yeah, and it's it was it was roughly a biopic of his life. So, <laughs> um, I love hearing him say that they're classified. If only he knew someone who had endorsed him, who could declassify anything with his mind. <laughs> House Republicans have withdrawn their ad buy of close to a million dollars that was originally meant to support Majusi's campaign. They have cut homeboy loose. And one more thing about the Republicans this week, because Ron DeSantis is really doubling down on the dumbing down of what he did. Republican governors have transported more than 10,000 migrants to Democratic areas since April. And most of these migrants are Venezuelans fleeing that socialism they demonized, seeking asylum. They are not illegal immigrants. The majority of them are sent to D.C. Uh, Mayor Browser has declared a public emergency over the influx. And of course, it reached a fever pitch when these migrants were flown to Martha's Vineyard and dropped off in front of Kamala Harris's residence. Uh, when Biden has moved migrants around, it's to make beds available at the border. And whenever Biden has moved migrants around, the officials on the ground know they're coming. So um, I want to play you this grotesque, sniveling prick, Ron DeSantis, justifying what he did with a little game we call Count the Lies. Biden is flying these people all over the fruited plain in the middle of the night. I didn't hear a peep out of those people, okay? I didn't hear a peep. He's getting up there. I haven't heard a peep about all the people that have been told by Biden you can just come in and they're going, they're being abused by the cartels, they're drowning in the Rio Grande. You had 50 that died in some shed in Texas. I heard no outrage about any of that. Uh, I haven't heard outrage about all the fentanyl that's come across the border that's killing Americans in record numbers. I don't hear... I don't hear outrage about the criminal aliens that have gotten through and have then victimized people, not only in Florida, but all throughout the country. I didn't hear mm. any outrage about that. The only thing I hear them getting upset about is you have 50 that end up in Martha's Vineyard. Then they get really upset. Okay, let's break that down, shall we? Again, Joe Biden has not ever opened the border. A lie that shitty white people repeat many times is still a lie. Joe Biden didn't lie to migrants about jobs and housing and social security cards like Ron DeSantis did to trick them onto airplanes. Joe Biden didn't move them around without telling people they were coming. Joe Biden didn't use COVID relief money like Ron DeSantis to ship them around to cities he dislikes. And again, you want to end undocumented immigration? Go after the people doing the hiring. You will never do that, you evil twit, because you need to scare white people because you have nothing to offer them. And this is Ron DeSantis. Here's my deal, friends. I don't mean to be insufferable, but any politician who still talks like this and any politician or media figure who claims to be Christian and supports DeSantis Trump migrant policy needs to be called out. Deuteronomy. And you are to love foreigners. Exodus, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner. Leviticus, love foreigners as you love yourself. Hebrews, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, lest they be angels in disguise. Jesus, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. Also, St. Paul, 
Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And hey, let's just throw in the Good Samaritan where Jesus takes a despised foreign minority and makes him the hero. And in that story, it is the Good Samaritan who pays out of pocket for another immigrant's health care. They tend to skip that story. So these Republicans can go around demonizing migrants seeking refuge here. They can demonize it all they want while supporting a man, Donald Trump, who has hired undocumented immigrants since the 80s because he doesn't want to pay an American worker a living wage. What they can't do anymore is claim to be Christian. This show will call them what Jesus calls the fuck out. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I'm John saying This is SiriusXM Progress. So it's 2022 and they're banning books. More and more states are doing it. More and more districts are doing it. And more and more students are losing access to literature. Um, Penn listed their index of school book bans from July of 2021 to June of 2022. They came up with 2,532 instances of individual books being banned, 1,648 titles by 1,261 authors, 290 illustrators, and 18 translators in 138 school districts in 32 states. These districts represent over 5,000 schools with a combined enrollment of nearly 4 million students. And what do they all have in common? They're going to ban a lot of books, which means they're going to sell a lot of banned books. My unpopular opinion, these idiots are heroes because these books will now be exposed to a wide array of empathetic young people who will want to know why the lame old people don't want them to read it. Into the fray comes a true hero, Kenneth C. Davis, one of our favorite historians and guests. He is, of course, the author of the Don't Know Much About History book series, also in The Shadow of Liberty, the best book about slavery since Roots, uh, and many others, including Strongman, The Rise of Five Dictators, and The Fall of Democracy. Kenneth Davis, welcome back, and uh, happy Band Books Week. It's not a happy book, ban books week ever, John, and this year less happy than ever. And I've been following ban books week since it began about 40 years ago. That's how long we've been talking about this. Of course, banned books go back much longer. They've been banning and burning books as long as there have been books. Um, but it's a, a different level right now in this country. And by the way, thank you, as always, for having me on. But, and it's always a pleasure to be with you. I, I, I just want to wonder where our invitations to the Elton John concert at the White House were. I mean, I don't know where oh, mine is. Is that tonight? Is that tonight? It's it, it, as we speak, I think. But um, what, what, can I, what can we do? We'd rather talk about <laughs> even know. everything. <laughs> well, you know, you know, Kenneth, from from now on, every time we say God save the queen, it, people are talking about Elton. So I'm glad uh, I'm glad the queen's here. Um, and, and on other musical notes, I'm sure you you've you've probably noted that it is Bruce Springsteen's birthday. But I would also throw into mix that it's the birthday of Ray Charles. 
Uh, we John have not Coltrane. gotten to either. I would throw into the mix that it's also the birthday of John Coltrane. It's a powerful I just said John day Coltrane. for uh, absolutely. For so yeah, it's a, it's a it's a good day for American music. At, at least. we'll be playing them but all tonight. They're all on our playlist for the evening. Back back to this very very important subject, John. Is it it has been um, banned Books Week. That is something that the American Library Association started a few weeks ago, and I'm just going to take a, a little pick a little bit at, at something you just said. Uh, these books do sell very well uh, after there's an announcement or news that they've been banned, or at least some of them do. Um, a few months ago, for instance, there was a word about Mouse, the graphic yes. novel about the Holocaust by Art Spiegelman was banned in Tennessee, and it immediately went to the top of the Amazon bestseller list. That happens for some, but certainly not all of these books that are being banned. And there's something else, which is that just because they're selling doesn't mean they're getting into the hands of the kids, the students who might otherwise be able to access them in a library because those kids might not necessarily be able to buy those books. Um, right. So even, even though adults are going and grabbing up those books and being supportive, it's a great idea. It's still the fundamental denial of these materials that professional librarians who are trained uh, to to curate collections um, have put together. So this is really a, a question of keeping books out of the hands, in many cases, of these books that are about subjects like gender and homosexuality and uh, certainly race. Those are yes. the books that are being targeted right now. A lot of kids who would really benefit from being able to hear those stories and read those stories are not able to. So well, I, I know, think this is a really yeah. dangerous thing. And as you pointed out with that pen survey, it's, it's widespread and it's getting bigger. It's bigger than ever before. And more importantly, it's more organized and funded and right. social media driven than it's ever That's been right. before. This is a very, very highly organized movement now that is spreading across the country. Uh, Pan America put 1,648 unique titles in their index of banned books over the past year. Um, 41% explicitly address LGBTQ themes or have lead characters or prominent secondary characters who are LGBTQ. 40% uh, of the books have protagonists or prominent secondary characters of color. 21% directly address issues of race or racism. 10% of the banned books have themes related to rights or activism. And 4% include characters and stories that reflect religious minorities like Jewish, Muslim, and other faith traditions. And the states that are the worst... Texas, by far, uh, followed by Florida, Tennessee, and Pennsylvania. You know, obviously, this is nothing new, Ken, and this is something that is very, very grounded in history. I want to go back into the history of it, but first, let me just ask, what's the history of Banned Books Week? How long have we had this? I know that it's done to celebrate the freedom to read, but how long have we been observing this? It, it is 40 years old this year, I believe, and it comes out of a uh, case that um, happened in, New, uh, in the New York suburbs on Long Island, uh, a case called the Island Trees case, um, mm -hmm. where uh, the school board, uh, at the insistence of parents, uh, started to wanted to ban a whole series of books. Uh, a list of books that they thought were um, pornographic. That's usually the, the, you know, that these are sexual books and they have no place in the classroom. Um, actually, students sued and the students won. And the Supreme Court made a decision in this case. And it was an important decision uh, that still relates today because it said that school boards have the right to uh, to limit what books are available to students. But they made a very dis clear distinction that they couldn't be uh, dis discriminated against b based on p their political views. 
Um, right. And it was, so it was, it was a very, very uh, nuanced decision, but an important one. And so that, uh, that 1982 decision really marks kind of the beginning of uh, Banned Books Weeks. But this is a much older history. I mean, we can go it back is. to uh, in the United States in the 1830s, for instance, um, the abolitionist movement in the North wanted to flood the southern states, the slaveholding states with abolitionist um, pamphlets. You're and right. Andrew Jackson, the president at the time, actually ordered the Postal Service to stop delivering these things, damn the First First Amendment. And then in Charleston, South Carolina, they actually went into a warehouse, took these pamphlets out, and burned them uh, in a huge bonfire in the street. <laughs> so not only book banning, but book burning has been around for a long time. Uh, in the 1950s, and this is another important uh, moment, we had McCarthyism. And I uh, have written about this on my website right now, a piece called When Robin Hood Was Blacklisted. There was a, a textbook commissioner in Indiana who actually said schools could not have books that had Robin Hood in it because mm. Robin Hood stole from the rich to give to the poor. That's the essence of socialism. So they wanted to ban Robin Hood. And it, it's kind of funny to us now, looking back at that in 1952-53, but that was really part of the whole McCarthyism move. And Senator Joe McCarthy had a young attorney whose name was Roy Cohen. And That's right. Roy Cohen and his friend David Shine went to Europe and started clearing out the libraries that were run by the state, uh, possessed by the State Department in uh, post war Europe, where they were trying to build up. Uh, American libraries so that Europeans could get American culture and read American writers. They started clearing out these these books um, because they were written by people like Lillian Hellman and Dashiell yep. Hammett, famous for his mysteries, or Howard Fast, um, people who had been blacklisted during the whole great communist fear. And this spread around the country in the 1950s under McCarthyism, and they started to go after public libraries then, wanting to take off anything that hinted of socialism, take Karl Marx's books off the shelf for sure. Um, the president at the time, Dwight Eisenhower, made a very famous speech where he said, don't, don't join the book burners, but that's about as far as he went. He really wasn't going to push back against McCarthy, who was very, very powerful at the time. And there was this movement across the country to start uh, stripping and purging libraries of books. Right. Um, the people who stood up to this were the librarians. The librarians were on the front line. And this is the first time that the American Library Association in 1953 issued its freedom to read statement. It's a very powerful statement. It's been updated many times since. And so this is uh, 40 years that we've been marking banned books week, but it's really a much older story. It's a 70-year-old story when we think about um, McCarthyism and what that meant. You know, certainly there were other times in our history when sex was, uh, sexual books of any kind were uh, considered the bugaboo. Um, Absolutely. But the courts have always basically upheld the First Amendment, certainly when it comes to adult reading. But even in the cases of schools, uh, they've uh, held that uh, the First Amendment is, is powerful. Uh, yes. I know a lot of teachers. I speak to a lot of teachers. I speak to a lot of librarians. They will tell you, look, if a parent says, I don't want my child to read that particular book, there's a way around it. You can you you read an alternative book. Um, that's what sensible, rational librarians and teachers do all the time. But this has now been politicized. It's been yeah. politicized, especially with no question about it, by the right. Uh, and it's a very white nationalist Christian movement that is uh, driving this this move to get these books out of schools and out of public libraries as well. And it goes in hand in hand with the movement. It's very important to me, and we've talked about it before, this movement to change what we teach in history. Correct. Uh, how uh, wh What history we teach. 
Uh, these things are very, very closely connected, and the right is using this uh, to really rile up a lot of parents. Uh, they, they're, you know, throwing out these words like critical race theory and woke. Yeah. Uh, these are buzzwords uh, in, 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 the, in the right-wing atmosphere for yes, and it's all about curtailing knowledge. Like, it's it's all about restricting knowledge. And yeah. and Ken, we've only got a couple of minutes, but I, I here's my big question from everything you've just said. I understand why this would happen in previous generations. I understand religious fundamentalism and provincial attitudes, but we live in a time now, Mr. Davis, when kids have access to every kind of graphic porn in the world with just a few strokes of a keyboard. Why are these people trying to ban books right now? I mean, you know, their kids can see all the sex and violence they want on the Internet. It seems like it really is, as you say, relating to white Christian nationalism. It's all about excluding ideas more than content. Absolutely. The, the answer, John, is fear. Uh, why burn a book or ban a book? Why to go to war, war against written words? The answer is simple, fear. And usually is fear of ideas that threaten established power and authority. And let's let's be clear that these people right now, this white Christian nationalist movement that is talking about replacement theory, fears the end of their power and control over the uh, this this country, which they've exercised for most of its history. And they understand that um, once you label something degenerate or sinful, it is much more easily suppressed or crushed. And a strong man like Mussolini or Stalin understands the importance of controlling words and thoughts. They, you know, killed writers and and mm -hmm. and put writers in concentration camps. Uh, uh, writers like Solzhenitsyn, uh, who, mm -hmm. who then wrote about uh, the, the Stalinist camps. So. This is a um, much bigger story than just banning some books so that kids right. won't read a sexy page or see the cartoon bared breasts in Art Spiegelman's mouth, which is <laughs> what, exactly right. what the parent was complaining about. This is really a war of ideas. And back during World War II, there was a very successful American program called armed services editions and their their idea was to give books to to soldiers and their motto was books are weapons in the war of ideas and that's what we're in right now we're in a war of ideas and uh right now teachers and librarians are on the front ranks of that library and mm -hmm. uh, of that battle and um we can't we can't lose this it's it's too important. That's why uh, it's this is really something that goes beyond I agree. Uh, banning a few books from a classroom. Ken Davis, it is always a pleasure and an honor to have you with us. What's the best way for our listeners to follow you before we hit a break? Uh, you can get me at don'tknowmuch.com and look for the new book uh, coming in two months called Great Short Books, which is a book about books and uh, okay. includes a lot of banned writers. I can't wait. Kenneth, thank you so much. Quick break. When we come back, more of your calls and a very special chat. I'm so glad this gentleman is joining us. The great Jerry Hamza, who managed George Carlin's career for decades. Um, we had Kelly Carlin on when the new movie came out. And now that it's won the Emmy, we are so thrilled to welcome a man who really deserves a lot of credit for the trajectory of George Carlin's amazing career. We will be right back. 866-997-4748. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. 
Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. If you listen to this show, you know all about the film George Carlin's American Dream. We had Kelly Carlin on to talk about it during the release. It's directed by Judd Apatow with Michael Bonfiglio, and it is a four-hour, two-part documentary about George Carlin's career. And I, I hired career. all those guys. I was executive <laughs> producer. So I'm just beginning your intro. I'm trying to do your intro. Let me let me set you hey. up, Jerry. <laughs> and the guy who hired all those guys is my next guest. Jerry Hamza has had an amazing career. He began it promoting country artists like Merle and Willie Nelson. But one day he met a young man named George Carlin. And for the next 35 years, he was George's best friend and close business partner and was one of the producers of George Carlin's American Dream. And here's my favorite bit of trivia. There's an interview with Jerry that's featured on George's posthumous album, I kind of like it when a lot of people die, which I think makes him the first person to ever appear on a George Carlin comedy album who's not George Carlin. Jerry Hamza, what a thrill. I Welcome. Think you're right. Such a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. I was happy about that album appearance or whatever. Uh, but George and I were together from uh, about 1975 till he died in 1981. And we were 19, very close. 2008. I think it was 2008. I mean, 2008. What am I talking yeah. about? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And, you know, I went through everything with him. When I, uh, I'll, I'll tell you how, and this is really funny. I was so immersed in country music. Uh, Loretta Lynn was a great fan. Patsy Klein stayed over my house. Oh, my God. Tammy Wynette. Uh, and George Jones were married and they were living in uh, Lakeville, mm-hmm. something in Florida. And she was making me graham cracker pies. So, I mean, my roots <laughs> really went there and I really wasn't looking around. So when I met George, I didn't know a thing about George. As hot as he was, my father, I wanted to quit country traveling. The whole talk to him, talk to him. And I didn't want to be out on that road. I'd done it for a long time, and I wanted to lay back, and my father would say, why, what does he want to be a bum? And he right. to be a bum. Uh, one day, he never gave up. One day, he did a show with a partner in Toledo, and the guy in Toledo says, I can get you a couple of dates on this comedian. I played him two weeks ago, and we sold out, but he didn't show up, but he swears he's going to come back and play the date which he did ultimately, and that was George. And uh, he would blow dates. He'd get loaded. You know, he wasn't George Jones, but <laughs> he'd get loaded and he wouldn't show up. Right. So the, for the first time, you know, my father had dates set in Syracuse and Rochester, and I was from Rochester. Right. So I couldn't say, geez, I don't want to do the traveling. You know, I didn't. Have, he had me boxed in. So I says, yeah, okay, let's let's do the dates. And I did the two dates. Uh, four shows in two days with George. And uh, what he, I can remember more of his act than he could. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we got through the shows and a month and a half later, did five more shows with him. And we found that we liked each other. We were both from New York, you know, Catholic schools. We yeah. hated the same people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'd get along. I'd get along very well. There was a a duet that George used, uh, you know, with Chandler Travis and Steve Shook, right, to open for him. And he had a road manager. And that night, you got to remember, I'm I'm in a blue pinstripe suit or something, very conservative. And we'd go back to hotel after the show, and they said, "Let's go have a cereal party." Well. I don't know what a serial party is, but I wanted to get friendly with these guys. So we go back. It took me six months to connect the pot with the donuts. <laughs> and that's, that's <laughs> how our relationship evolved. George would be on a bed, and he's getting ready to go away. And uh, it was all about trying to talk to somebody 
and enamor yourself to them while they were loaded, which is very <laughs> tough. To I, I have to tell you what a fan I am of the albums. I, I owned every album. I saw so many tours. The first time I saw George was on the Jam in the New York tour, and, and that was the night I decided <laughs> to, to be a comic. And I owe so much gratitude. Every fan of George's work owes so much to you for the structure and discipline and guidance that you gave his career. And congratulations on the Emmy win. I love the film. I love so much about it from how it covered Jack Burns, how it covered George's wife, um, up through the uh, the debate about whether he was a nihilist or not. I was really curious, though, Jerry, were there any specific bits that you really wanted in the film from the beginning? That, that I wanted him to do? To, that you to, wanted to be included oh, in the yeah in the doc, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, obviously the abortion line and all those things, but uh, he had... He wasn't as liberal. He was a liberal, but he wasn't a stone liberal, you know. Yeah. And uh, you know, he could look at both both sides of things. I love the the bit that he did uh, when he starts making fun of Ronald Reagan mm -hmm. and his gang, which costs us like two million dollars from a film company. Oh, wow. <laughs> George had broken down and agreed to do a commercial. Uh, for a million bucks, and uh, we did it, and it went over great, but George hated himself for doing it. And they wanted, they had a contract ready there for two years to uh, pick it up. And we went and did a show in Newark, near where their headquarters was, and George went out, you know, Japanese people are very conservative business people. And George went out and he just talked about fuck Reagan. And, yeah. and he knew the whole litany of everybody on his squad. And we never heard from him again. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, in, in watching the film and watching the abortion bit you talked about, that just went viral again this year. I'm curious, as as someone who was there for the creation of so much material, and I really feel that George had three phases in his career, Jerry. Tell me if you agree with this. The the press always says, oh, he began as this mainstream comic and then he became this hippie. And I, I really think that there were three waves in his career. He was the clean cut guy who did the funny characters, the mainstream comic. Then he was the hippie, long haired counterculture who became the legend. But I always felt the third wave of George Carlin's career began in 1991, 1992, with Jammin' in New York and then back in town. That was when he said he stopped being a comedian and became an essayist. I mean, as someone who was there when he would build these sets, would you agree that it seemed like he, by, from the 90s onward, he had a whole different outlook on performing? The only song that George sang for the last five years of his life, at least, is I'm a stand-up second. I'm a writer. I'm a writer. Now, that's coming right from George. You know, I heard him, oh, good, George, go write a fucking book. But, <laughs> you know, which he did. Like a manager. But he would take like his a material from his stand-up and turn it into a book. But you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, he got offered so many shows, and uh, different TV shows and stuff like that, and he always ran away because he could see that the writing would keep dropping, dropping, dropping if the show stayed on the air and he wanted nothing to do with it. And he wanted the high wire for himself where he could write what he wanted and he was out there on his own and he just loved that. And, you know, I mean, that's what he, that's what it was all about. Yeah. He came, he had had a heart attack and wound up in the hospital and the first date back, was in Providence, Rhode Island. Now, this is after like about a six, seven week break because of the heart attack. And right. he came off the stage and he says, oh, boy, that was like a tonic for me. That was great. I could do my material and blah, blah, blah. We were off and running. <laughs> do you have any theories, Jerry, about why is it that George's material has aged so well? But Lenny Bruce, who we all owe a great debt to, um, you don't hear young people listening to Lenny Bruce. And for many, listening to Lenny's albums is often more uh, an appreciation than something you listen to laugh to. You know, with George, I'll be a little vain here, 
Sure. I think I think we created the most layered audience in the business. And I grew up in it, man. I was sitting on a piano stool with Count Basie when I was six years old, watching him re- rehearse George, Joe Williams. So I know what I'm talking about. And what George had, he went back to these people that are old, that saw him on Mike Douglas or Murd Griffin, and then, you know, on Saturday Night Live, and then on HBO, which was the heart. So that was what fueled his career. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then he even got the little kids that uh, saw him on Shining Time Station as Mr. That's Conductor. Right. That's right. And I, I was glad, you, you know, I had to talk a minute of that one, but I was glad I did it because the parents loved it. Their little kids, they'd run into us in an airport. Lenny uh, was a brilliant man, there's no question. Yeah. That great comic, but, but but who's promoting him? Who's doing anything? You know, uh, I've worked very hard since George's death and before to talk about him and what he did and what he was. Somebody could have done about the same thing with Lenny. I mean, geez, look look at the movie, look at everything he was about. Yeah, he was a hero. But it, and I'm going to get his daughter mad at me. But I mean, somebody should have been working on that all the time. Yeah. That's the only, you know, my old man used to get me mad. He'd say, you get out of life what you put into it, which I hated to hear. Well, with promoting comedians or singers, you you get back what you put into it, and especially a controversial comedian like Bruce, geez, you could do a million things with him. Yeah. Whatever I did with George, I know I could have done with him. As a matter of fact, he killed himself with drugs, I guess. That's the way the movie went anyway. Yeah. And he was very smart. He was a very smart guy. Somebody in that loop let it go. Now, I don't know who his wife was. I don't know if he had anybody working yeah. with him or whatever. But don't let anybody ever knock Lonnie Bruce to you. Because I know you wouldn't. I can tell yeah. by looking at you. But... uh you know, he's a hero, and to be quite honest with you, I hate to see him not getting the attention. I agree. I think I think the Christ and Moses visit New York City bit by Lenny at the Carnegie Hall concert, you could play that on any comedy channel today, and it totally holds up. Um, and, and like George, he was someone who could do the impressions, but he had a deeper calling. And, you know, now we see references to Carlin all over the place in our popular culture. You see clips on social media all the time. People on the right claim him as one of their own. People on the left claim him as one That's of their what's own. That's great about it. Exactly. You know, and, and I believe that, I mean, when Lenny, some of his stuff was very extreme, but I believe if it was shaped the right way and fed to him the right way, uh, he'd be a monstrous legend today. And today, I bet you if you asked 100 people if they ever heard Lenny Bruce's material, I'd be very sad to hear how many of them actually ever listened to his albums or saw him on, you know, TV. This guy, this guy was smart. He says, I remember a headline that he had uh, that he used in a newspaper. And the headline was six million Jews found in Argentina. He's just a funny bastard. I heard a rumor that you wanted to put George's bit, Modern Man, out for release as a single. Is that true? No. No, I, no not at all. I, I would have done it. I knew how strong a piece was. Yeah. <laughs> the thing I'm proud of George was with that. Other pieces I had helped and we traveled together. By the time he did Modern Man, he was really sick. And he went and buried himself, no pun intended, you know, and just worked on that piece and worked on it and worked on it. And when it when it was heard, especially by a lawyer that I had in New York, uh, told me, put it out as a single, put it out as a single. And I had about five people tell me that, but I ignored them because I felt like so strong, it'll draw people in to hear that piece and hear the rest of George. Yeah. You know, especially if there are people that never heard George, it'd be terrific. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, never I... regretted it, John. I never I never regretted not putting that uh, 
out there by itself. Well, you know, my my favorite period of George's life, I love the little David years. I love the 80s. But it really is from from jamming in New York when he takes on the first popular Persian Gulf War all the way through you are all disease, through it's bad for you. I'm curious. These were all kind of your babies, too. Did you have a, yes. an album or a special, Jerry, that was closest to your heart or that you would want people to watch to really that you thought was the best encapsulation yeah, of in New York? Heart? Me too. Yeah, I'm in New York. Me too. Yes, yes, yes. You know, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what happened, uh, which is a good story for your listeners. I don't want to keep keep you too long. That's no, okay. Uh, Jamming in New York was at the Paramount, and it sold out. I had held about 30, 40 tickets to the night of the show, and we were going live with that show. And just before the start of the show, we got a threatening call that we were going to disrupt the live show and uh, blah, blah, blah. Well, fortunately, I was an old promoter, and I knew where the tickets were that, you know, were sold at the end. So I had like eight security guys around this little area, and all of a sudden, three, four guys stand up and shot George. They were out before they could get a nostril full of air, you know? Like, uh, <laughs> that's what I remember. But as far as the show itself, I think uh, his material couldn't be better. Uh, I mean, I think Modern Man is a beautiful piece, too. But that yeah. whole show, that I whole show, and being in New York City where he came from, yep. you know, all of that, it just said, you know, he, he must have had a doctor. This is true. He must have, he must have had a doctor. My feeling is he changed cardiologists not long before he died, maybe like a year. And George was the type of guy that you'd have to be encouraging with him. You couldn't mm. tell a guy like George, uh, look, you may live 10 years. You could drop dead tomorrow. Forget about it. He'd be ready for the nuthouse. You know, it just wasn't uh, the way it worked. And, Anyway, I don't know if a doctor ever did say anything like that to him, but I do know that the title of his next show was going to be Fuck Hope. That's right. <laughs> Fuck Hope. And he would have done it. He would have done it. I, I, I have to agree with you. Jamming in New York, I saw at Westbury Music Fair on Long Island, and it's the only set, the only individual set of any comic that ever changed my life. And I listened to it again this year, and it still has as much power then. I, I got to ask you one more question, sir, and then I, I will let you go. It's such an honor to have you with us. Um, I asked Kelly Carlin about this when the film was released, but the last act of Judd's movie really deals with my favorite comedy debate. George was saying for the last decade or so of his life that he was rooting for the comet. He, he was rooting for the human race to be wiped out. But I will admit, I never really bought it. I think that was the persona, but I always thought there was just so much compassion. If he didn't care about humanity... He could have been a rich, successful hack. Where do you come down on that debate, Jerry? Because every comic has it. Was George really as cynical and nihilistic as the onstage persona no, portrayed? No, he wasn't. No, that was more far anger, really. I mean, you want to be honest about it. But he knew it worked. Yeah. But the thing, the thing with George was uh, he would mean what he was saying, but he always had a heart. He told me once about, I don't know if he was doing Merv Griffin or... Uh, Mike Douglas or whoever he was, but there was a comedian that was never on TV before. And who do you think the other two acts are on the show? George and Pryor. Ah. Okay. So George says, geez, I went and talked to the guy after the show. I felt so bad for the son of a bitch. I felt like telling him, why don't you become an accountant or something or do whatever your father does? You know, this is a murderous <laughs> business. If, if you look at the comics, nobody's out there talking about Rodney Dangerfield. Nobody's yeah. talking about Joan River. Nobody's talking, you know, you don't have, they forget you unless you got something special. Yeah. And that's what George had. He had something special. When I when I heard him talking about wiping out the planet and then he, then he thought about the virus, I thought, wow, Amazing. right in the middle, right in the, in the nail, right on the head. 
Jerry Hamza, every fan of George Carlin's work owes so much thanks to you. Thank you for making right. him a better artist and a better professional. George Carlin's American Dream is streaming now on HBO Max. I'm sorry, the Emmy Award winning George Carlin's American Dream. Sir, it's really mm. a pleasure. Please come back anytime. I'd love to hear more stories and talk more about Thank your you work. very, very much. We've Thank always you. had a great relationship with Sirius, and you're terrific. Sounds no. like you understand, George, and that makes it nice. Actually, I've taken Kelly Carlin hostage, and she's tied up in my basement. That that was my that's how I got you here. So it, it's kind of it's kind <laughs> of evil. But thank you so much. Have a great evening. Really appreciate you joining us. Take care, man. Take care. It is time now to welcome back, whether you can handle it or not, the power, the glory, Stephen from Kentucky. Good evening, sir. Hello. Hi. Well, you know, I wanted to mention before I begin about Louise Fletcher. Please. You, you know, actually, Louise Fletcher was actually one of the first people contacted to uh, portray Aurora Greenway on Terms of Endearment. Actually, Was she really? Before, before Shirley MacLaine? Well, yeah, you had a couple of people. You had uh, Ellen Burstyn that was called. You had yes. uh, Anne Bancroft. You had Louise Fletcher. She was one of the ones. And, um, of course, Miss Fletcher also did uh, a Christmas movie called Dennis the Menace Christmas with uh, Robert Wagner as Mr. Uh, Wilson. Ooh, of course, I missed that one. And then uh, High School High, I don't know if you remember that film with uh, John Lovitz and Tia yes. Cree, and there was, that one, <laughs> there was that one scene where she was, her late husband was a drug lord, and okay. she was a principal on the sly, and she ran the drug business on the sly, and um, John Lovitz was trying to rescue one of his students from falling prey to Mr. Big, so he ah. goes in there, and uh, they look at his arms, and they say, hey, I don't see any track marks. And he says, well, I take mine up the ass, my crack up the ass. <laughs> You're giving me a lot of culture I haven't heard before. Thank you. So that's, that's <laughs> I believe I believe that Louise Fletcher uh, also starred in the movie version of Flowers in the Attic, too. Well, she did. Yeah, she did. Actually, she was Ellen Burstyn's sister in that. And, you know, actually, in the 70s, when she did the role of Nurse Ratchet, Ellen Burstyn was one of the feminists at that time. And she and actually, she was right. In 1975, you didn't really have a lot of strong roles for women in movies for Best Actress that year for the Academy. Mm. And I know Diana Ross was considered for Mahogany, I know, as well. And you had... That woman, the other side of that the mountain. Network was that Faye Dunaway Network year? No, that was seventy six. Look at that you! Look at you getting better. Okay, and then yeah. then Annie Hall was the following. I got you. And and as a matter of fact, you talk about Faye Dunaway. I had one of my former hairdressers actually had a well had a an encounter with Miss Dunway, and he called her Dun Fadeaway. That's what they oh referred her as. Well, she was a witch. She was. And yeah, so she's so still with us, by the way. Well, it's a shame because Faye was a wonderful actress in her day. She was. I mean, she did a wonderful... And I I, I love some of the disaster genre I did. I loved the Poseidon Adventure and Earthquake. Of course, I love that chapeau that Ava Gardner wore in Earthquake. I don't know if right, you remember Right, but that we're, Faye Dunaway's not in those movies. Where, 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 where are you going? Oh, no, no, she this? was in Tower and Inferno. She was. Oh, that one. Yes, she was in that one. Yes. Genre. Well, I, I still want to. I still think that Faye Dunaway probably has another. Look, she's still a great actor, and if she wanted to have a, another great performance, I'd love to see it happen. Even if it was on stage, I, 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 I like to see movie stars become actors again, and I would love to still see her get a get a role. I only met her once years ago when she was dating Peter Wolf, and she was very, very beautiful and uh, and and very uh, just from another planet. Like I it's couldn't even approach her. It's it's kind of a shame because you know there's some and you know being in this business there and I think it I hate to say this but sometimes I think it gets a bad rep it does because you have some wonderful people in the business Rita Moreno comes to mind Carol Burnett mm. comes to mind Alan Alda yes. is a wonderful man and all those people have all been on this show I love them all. 
And then you have some that do have problems, you know. Um, but I think what people need to remember is that happens in all professions. It does. You know, it, you cannot escape from that. You're going to have some that are prima donnas and some that aren't, obviously. You're right. And You're very right. So, but Steve, I have to pl- say, though, Go ahead. in Towering Inferno, I yes. hated to see Jennifer Jones die. I loved her in that film. <laughs> and, and I wanted to see Faye Dunway fall off that instead of Je- I, they, Jennifer Jones. Jones gave those two children, Bobby Brady, the guy who played oh, but Mike Luke Paul and Newman and Steve McQueen. What a pairing. What a pairing of two great actors. Well, they were. And, you know, of course, Mr. McQueen, I heard, had a bit of a prima donna complex, too, from what I understand. He did. He, he wasn't necessarily the kindest individual. But Paul Newman is just was just the salt of the earth. He and Joanne Woodward. As a matter of fact, they used to be neighbors to Betty Davis in well, there you go. years ago. And Betty Davis, Bet, you know, I'm just going to say Betty Davis was, I was never a fan as much of Miss Davis and Miss Crawford, although I think Betty Davis did, was a consummate actress. You know, she certainly <laughs> deserved credit for that. But Betty Davis was, that bitchiness was there, but she also had, uh, she did, but she was professional at times. I mean, she yes. gave credit where credit was due at times, she did, but she, but I don't know, sometimes you just wanted to slap her. You know, she just well, was. No, I, I never wanted to slap Betty Davis, but Stephen, it's lovely to hear from you, and I thank you so much for okay. joining us. This is Progress. <laughs>